are listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Despite the name of our organization, I don't think I'm necessarily the most cuddly, loving guy, and I certainly don't push the teaching in that direction. Um, not because I'm not cuddly or loving, um, but, but because by nature, um, my approach to the teaching, I think that love and its expression kind of comes from the absence of fear. And fearlessness comes from a recognition of union. So I tend to go at the whole unification thing with the teaching in the hope that the love will kind of spring from that rather spontaneously and naturally. Uh, but the, the discussion that, that I had was kind of, um, it was really neat. Uh, the, in A Course in Miracles, it says the opposite of love is fear. I quite often have met that same exact deal with the, the, uh, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love in, uh, in, in uh, some of the dialogues that I've had with many of you is indifference. And indifference is a response to fear. Indifference is an avoidance. And we avoid the things we don't want to face. So considering this, this is a really powerful teaching. Um, and my hope is that it does not lack warmth. <laughs> that actually you start recognizing the loveless areas within you are actually areas rooted in fear. Without fear, love is all that's left. This is our natural state. Our natural state is, uh, is love. I tend not to go with that word because we have so much baggage associated with it. Kind of like, I always use the example of God. Whenever I use the word God, people immediately go into some type of uh, attachment or aversion. And often the same thing happens with love. Well, love should be like this. You must not love me because, right, we can go, we can, the definition of love is a really heavy, powerful story that we tend to carry with us. And so, rather than tell you what love is, we perhaps can work very, very consciously with what love is not. And what love is not in terms of tonight's discussion is fear. An absence of fear. A life without fear. Utter and complete fearlessness is an expression of love continually. And so, where I really wanted to go tonight was kind of, um, I wanted to talk about how 
traditions tend to look at this idea of love or the felt sense of unquantifiably open and rich spirit, infinite, the infinite, the experience of the infinite, they tend to, to uh, all come down on this, uh, this, this question of, well, okay, if everything is spirit, if everything is already awake, if everything is already enlightened and everybody is already enlightened, why don't, why don't I feel it? And so what I wanted to do is kind of talk us through that uh, as best I can um, and then have a little bit of space for a Q&A afterwards after we sit. But during tonight's sitting, what might be really interesting, I invite you at least, to experience whatever it is that you're feeling as it's happening without trying to retool or re-engineer what's going on. Just be. This is a very, very difficult thing to do. But it is actually the only way, the only way to awaken. And that statement in and of itself might spawn a great argument or question at Q&A. I invite it. But I would also say that without stillness, without us meeting our lives utterly, completely, and totally as it is, awakening of any type of authenticity cannot happen. So just try it for 30 or so minutes. Just try it. Try being completely open to what's happening as it's happening and see what comes up. Whatever comes up, let it be there. Bring it. There was an interesting confluence this week of things that tended to support tonight's talk. Uh, I'll, I'll start off by saying that one of the um, great experiences about being a father of young girls is how they get just amazed and enthused with the simplest, most mundane things much of the time. Not all the time, but much of the time. And one of the, one of the things they love to do with dad is uh, go get the car washed. And so uh, we go to uh, the Lafayette car wash here, which just does a bang up job. And, and uh, uh, out front, the big reason why they like going to the car wash, I now understand, is because for 25 cents, they can ride a horse that goes back and forth. And uh, uh, so. So while, while the car is going through, we, we kind of watch it go through the various stages. And my daughter now does this great uh, impersonation of the part of the car wash that just dangles like this. She, she said, Dad, what does that do? And I, I had no response for her. I didn't really know. I don't know what that, that thing that looks like an octopus does. But Nonetheless, after that happened, then they shot immediately to go ride on the mechanized horse. Uh, 
So I throw in my coins and they start, uh, you know, each, each taking turns at first, but uh, leave it to dad to only have three quarters instead of four. So the, the third quarter meant we're going to have to figure out how to share. And this became, shall we say, ugly. <laughs> of course, in terms of Dharma, it's all beautiful, right? But this was just, and, and it's as I'm trying to photograph that the two of them, and they very rarely get into, you know, tiffs or arguments. They very rarely, they're pretty good with each other. But this was about a ride on a mechanical horse and the stakes were high. And so as I'm, as I'm taking, trying to take a picture of a happy moment, I'm instead getting just, you know, just these amazing faces of rage and anguish. And as I'm doing this, I kind of chuckled to myself and I said, this is the witness. Getting their experience on the iPhone with the little snapshot or movie or whatever you're doing, that is exactly what we're doing here. We watch our mind. We take photographs of what's going on, of the tantrums that ego throws. Okay? That's exactly what we are doing. And it was just a, a, a neat little moment where it's like, oh, yeah. This is a, a, an amazing expression of contemporary spiritual work. At any moment, now, we can not only photograph or film, but we can then post it, right? And in this work, contemporary spirituality, this fourth turning of the wheel, we sometimes call it, we are so able, unlike ever before in human history, to coalesce all of these teachings into that one simple act, which is to watch which, what's going on. We watch what's going on. If we can watch what's going on, we can have an awareness. And in that awareness of what's actually happening, we find freedom. We're no longer bound by what's happening. We're actually watching what's happening. And the watcher of what's happening is free, always. So, I mean, I don't know if we want to term the fourth turning of the wheel of Dharma as being, you know, the iPhoneization of Buddhism or anything. But I do think that it does set us up for kind of looking at ourselves and our experience a little bit differently. So I wanted to offer up um, uh, a reaction to, kind of a summary and a reaction to a, a talk that I heard given by uh, uh, Ken Wilbur, who uh, uh, was, was answering the question that I posed a little bit earlier about this idea that if everything is spirit, then how come I don't feel it? Which is such a common experience among practitioners, especially once they know a little bit. Once they've gotten through the, uh, the honeymoon stage of uh, meditation, let's say, or the honeymoon stage of, of uh, their, their, their uh, tradition, whatever it might be, they then get into this, the plateau. 
And uh, I spent an awful lot of time talking about that plateau. And I want to give it a little bit of uh, background. Um, as usual, I, th I thought that uh, Wilbur nailed it. He does just an, an amazing job of, of taking different traditions and kind of uh, uh, synthesizing them into, or integrating them, to use his own word, into uh, just a really, really profound, profoundly rich expression. And while um, I'm not going to go into it in nearly the detail that, that he has gone into, I did want to give it some of our, uh, um, our flavor. How is it that if everything is spirit, we don't feel it? And I'd say that there are three real predominant reasons why that is so. First of all, every one of us is a, a biological being. Every one of us has sight. We have eyes, we have ears, we have a nose, we have a tongue, we have skin. We have this sense experience of the world and the sense experience developmentally right around uh, you know, 18 months old or so you start recognizing that I am not the coffee table. When I walk into it, I feel pain. We feel this separation. We start recognizing that the world does not bend to my will. And that frustration arises out of this experience we call terrible twos. Every one of us went through it. Of course, everyone in this room was a precious angel, including myself. Mom isn't here tonight, so I can say that. Yeah. We have these, we have these, these, these moments in life that act as markers that we probably don't even recall, but that we recognize that we are separate. Biologically, we recognize it. Then something happens. We start uh, recognizing that yeah, while we are all biologically separate, we also, as long as you take a you know, high school uh, chemistry class or something, you start recognizing that there is some um, chemistry at play. Better yet, if you take physics, there's some physics at play that actually the universe is made up not so much of matter, but of space. And this throws kind of this weird, bizarre wrench into the entire mix because if we're made up of space, then what are we really? We're mostly space. We're mostly emptiness. And so then we start getting into this, instead of this uh, uh, body experience, we get into this mind experience. Instead of biology, chemistry, or physics, it starts becoming psychology. And we start looking at ourselves. We have a cognition of selfhood. Even though we can't answer what that really is, we can help it along. We can have self-help. We can do the deep exploratory work of what it means to be a self, of what it means to be miserable, what it means to be happy, and how much we want to bring the happiness and avoid the misery, the anguish. It's very natural. And so how do we go about doing that? Well, we move. We don't stay still, we move. We move towards the happiness or the things we think will get us there. Maybe it's 
another drink. Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's another degree. Maybe it's, a, you get the idea? We start moving. Stillness is anathema to the human experience at, at this point in the game. It's we're, we're seeking. We are seeking. And the seeking puts us into a space where the present is never enough. And yet all the spiritual traditions point to the present as being precisely what you are seeking. So we are running in an attempt to stand still when stillness is all that's needed. So we've got this biological material that points out separation, and then we get addicted to the mind, and the mind always registers movement. Finally, we begin to objectify things. We realize that we won't find happiness uh, by, by running after stuff, but we can create stories around things. And we start creating objects and identification with all the things that do move. And all this working together creates, as the Buddha said, suffering. So what's the way out? Well, uh, to begin with, at the very early stages of, uh, uh, of Buddhism, we call it the first turning. The, 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 first, uh, the first turning of the Wheel of Dharma was all about escaping samsara, escaping the world, escaping suffering, negativity, pain. And how do you do that? Well, you sit still. And then once you sit still, and it happens to everyone, this is a very common experience. This is not, this is documented stuff. You, if you sit still, okay, you really truly still, to the point where your body and your mind begin to kind of soften into this depth, this openness, this acceptance. It'll happen to each of you. You kind of hit this point where it's like, oh, <laughs> it's been under my nose the whole time. Now the fact of the matter is, it's very difficult for people to sit still. And it's not typically something you can do on a retreat every few months or, you know, whatever. It's, it's something that you need to really begin to pay very, very close attention to again and again and again, just like you might pay attention to your tennis game or the walks that you do, you know, keeping your body fit and so forth. We, be, we have to become spiritually fit. But in becoming spiritually fit, we hit this unquantifiably vast emptiness. We begin to have a felt sense of that very space that we always have been. This emptiness, or a fancy name for it, is Turiya, becomes the goal for the first turning of the wheel. It's going up the mountain, to use the metaphor I always use, it's going up the mountain and it is summiting. It is summiting that mountain. All right? But then there was a, a little bit of a challenge to this. Nagarjuna uh, uh, who you may be familiar with, uh, wrote uh, uh, The Middle Way and so forth, or articulated The Middle Way. You know, it's neither this nor that, it's a middle way, right? He starts saying that, you know what, if it's all about emptiness, then we're looking at emptiness as being separate from form. And if we're looking at emptiness as being separate from form, 
it's no longer unified. We're still creating a division, and that division is precisely what creates the suffering. So his radical contribution to this was, what we might call the second turning, was, yeah, you go to the mountaintop, but then you come home. That you recognize that it's not just about emptiness, but what the Heart Sutra says in Buddhism, people chant every day around monasteries throughout the world, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. That we start recognizing that emptiness is not the final stop, but bringing the realization of emptiness back into the world of form really consciously. And in doing this, we actually become helpful. So the second turning of the wheel, so to speak, the first turning was what we call Hinayana, okay, small boat is what that translation means. And then we go into Mahayana, which is the big boat. In other words, we're all in this together for the benefit of all beings, we awaken. That's the second turning. Okay? Fancy name for that, Turiya Tita. So we go to Turiya, and then we come into Turiya Tita. We go from separation of emptiness and form, with the goal being emptiness, to recognizing that the two are not separate, that there is non-separation, and we call this non-duality. And each of the traditions has this non-dual twist to it. I was talking to someone who's part of the uh, Sufi-reoriented uh, group that we have locally, and, and just in, they, they were very interested in what, what it was that I uh, do uh, on uh, how I articulate um, this teaching and so forth, and they were amazed at how similar it is to many of the things that they do. It's, I think, intellectually irresponsible to say that we're all doing the same thing on the one hand. On the other hand, it's absolutely accurate. You look at Christ's teaching, okay? You're going to find so much of the Buddha's teaching. I mean, it's just, it's, it's all there, okay? Especially as we get to this third turning, the third turning of the wheel. Um, and this is what I hit so squarely so much of the time. Start talking about how we have emptiness is the goal, and then we have emptiness and form are actually the same thing, and then we get into awareness. It's the third turning of the wheel. This third turning is about this ability to observe that all things offer us a direct path into awakening. All things offer us a direct, in, they, they are inviting us to realization. We start recognizing that subject and object are fused. We start seeing that there is only this awareness. So much of the time, I don't know if any of you who have, who have sat 
uh, with me um, before have I, I've talked about how if you start looking at your reality as it is right now, you start looking at just pick one thing in your reality. Maybe it's the person's shoulder who's sitting in front of you. Maybe it's an emotional uh, uh, block that you're kind of working with. Maybe it's something that um, happened years ago. Maybe it's a wish that you have. You pick it, whether it's an object of mind or a gross object in front of you, okay? If you look at that object, it is temporal, meaning it's bound by time. It will arise and it will cease. What goes up must come down. All things are born and then they die. It's bound by time. It's interdependent. It's interdependent, meaning that all things depend on each other. I always use the example of the jerk who cuts you off on the freeway. He depends on your opinion of him to be a jerk, right? Everything depends on everything else. There's no such thing as independence. And if we look deeply enough at any one of these things, we will find that they are infinite at their core, that they are space itself. And so this third turning, the Yogacara school, which espouses those, I'm, I'm wildly paraphrasing here, but espouses those three, those three things, that everything is time-bound, everything is interdependent, and everything is infinite at its core. We start looking at awareness as being this key. This witnessing presence, this seer of all that can be seen, is this subject that knows all objects. And that's within our experience. We start looking at the fact that we, in essence, have had this awareness forever. The awareness that you have right now is identical to the awareness you had 15 minutes ago. Your interpretation of what's happened may, may have shifted. You may be, for instance, thinking right now, I'm exhausted, I'm bored, I want to go home. Maybe that's what you're thinking. Or, what the hell is he talking about? I'm so lost. Or, maybe you're having, you know, an enlightenment experience, right? I don't care. Whatever it is, the awareness is still there. That awareness, actually, is something you cannot escape from. Your awareness is always there. And it's not yours. It just is. Irvin Schrodinger says, consciousness is a singular, the plural of which is unknown. <laughs> and I'll give him that break. I think he's uh, a pretty smart guy. <laughs> and I'm not trying to throw theoretical physicists at you to make it sound impressive. It's just really, it's really cool how it all starts to kind of begin to merge at this third turning. So what's the fourth turning? Well. I think a lot of people are, are kind of uh, uh, speculating. Um, I think the integration, the integration of all of these faiths has never been more accessible. This Sangha itself 
has arisen out of that very reality. This Sangha itself is here because of what the net has allowed for. And the generosity of everybody involved. And we are not alone. Any of you guys went to Sangha Palooza, you know. That, I mean, there's the, just in the Bay Area, there's this just this springing of various little Dharma centers and all sorts of different traditions and so forth. But they're, they're places where people are actually taking a different twist to tradition. So in each of these turnings, uh, they're, they're addressing, you know, in different traditions, they try to address this idea. Well, if it's all spirit, how come I'm not feeling it, dude? Well, we're not feeling it once again because of our biology. We're not feeling it because we're always seeking. We're not feeling it, okay? We're not experiencing this because we're identifying and clinging to things. The trick to all this, the trick to recognizing that it's all spirit and that you are part and parcel with that whole story and simultaneously beyond that whole story is to recognize that what gets in the way is clinging, is grasping, is identification. We miss the great perfection, so to speak, because we're so busy. If we go back to what we were talking about earlier, if we go back to this idea that love is the absence of fear, what we're really being taught here with each of the traditions, each of the turnings of the wheel, whether we're looking at um, Dzogchen, which is all about, uh, it's a, one of the highest levels of, uh, uh, of, of uh, Buddhist teachings, talking about presence now. Every state is the perfect state. Every state that you could possibly be in is the enlightened mind itself. Treated irresponsibly, that pretty much gives you permission to do anything, doesn't it? Okay? But if you're grounded in a tradition, if you're grounded in the idea that we should not do harm, you're looking at freedom squarely. If we start looking at um, contemplative Christianity, I'm going to miss the quote here, but I remember the um, the one the one command is that you would love each other as I love you, or something like that. I mean, how beautiful is that saying? Christian, you know, it's about love. Because really, it's about fearlessness. It's about the absence of fear and living in that space. And so taking that, the warmth, the heart that comes with, say, the Christian tradition, taking the all-encompassing I amness, the presence of Vedanta Hinduism, Taking the now of Dzogchen, Buddhism, weaving all these things together, we are once again afforded this opportunity 
to integrate heart and mind, to integrate fearlessness in a life. Young lady. If you talk a little bit more about how indifference fits in with all of this, I, um, I have a friend who is terrified to fly. Mm -hmm. what, what's the indifference and why, why is that a problem? Well, if we look at the terror, she's, she, he or she is terrified to fly, okay? Why, let's look at fear. Fear is a lack of presence, right? Really, it's a lack of presence. Instead, we write a story about loss that could potentially happen, and we fixate on the story of loss, and then that's what generates the fear because it rips us from what is actually happening, okay? So that's the origin, then, of the fear, that there's going to be loss, that there is panic about some future moment there will be major catastrophic loss. In this case, death, okay, loss of life or limb, okay? Makes sense, okay? But indifference would most likely not show up in that type of a situation. Indifference is an avoidance pattern that the ego uses to keep itself insulated from feeling terror. Okay? So it's defense mechanization at its best. Um, so I would look at, I, I oftentimes say that uh, the opposite, once again, of love is indifference. Well, indifference falls under the umbrella of fear, manifesting itself in awareness, showing up. It's a coping strategy for failure, a coping strategy for the, for the ego to be able to put fear in a box. Ugh, I don't care, right? When in fact there's deep care absolute care. <laughs> so what's the way out of this? Well, the way out of this is to open yourself to the fear. Open yourself to the loss. Open yourself to the fact that you will lose everything. So with that in mind, with the fact that you will lose everything, can you start getting ready for that? Most people do not want to think about it. They, in fact, do, they deny, and denies, denies sister is indifference. Denial sister is indifference. Yeah. It's kind of a messy way maybe of offering up an answer. 
looking at your face and I'm trying to figure out whether it, whether I landed it, so to speak. Um, it's a huge issue for me, and so I think uh, yeah. I've got to unpack it some more. Yeah. Well, looking at, looking at what's, I mean, again, fear is loss. It's, it's the, the loss at some future point. No, I, I get that. But mm -hmm. the indifference, I can't. Uh, and how does the indifference play into the flight? Like I worry that my husband's going to die. Mm -hmm. um, I actually worry that too. I like him. Yeah, I'm yeah. Not like you do, but I, I like him. Yes, yeah, he's just, he's just fine. Mm -hmm. So where, what's the indifference? I mean, how, how, how can I get rid of that fear? Well, there's, there's no, you don't sound indifferent at all to that, to, to your husband, you know, at all. So indifference doesn't fit in there at all. There is fear. Now, find something that you feel indifferent about. That's, that's a really cool place because the stickiness is very subtle, okay? The fear of losing hubby, that's, that's you, can, you can paint that one. You, you can become a draftsman around that one. But indifference gets a little bit murkier. If you're feeling indifferent about anything, it's probably because you have just, you know. A lot of people, for instance, uh, I had a discussion recently with somebody who felt utterly indifferent about the debate between Romney and Obama. Utterly indifferent. And it, you guys know I'm, I'm a highly political animal, okay? I don't, I don't get caught by it quite as much as I, I used to as a younger person, but it's still, it's very, I, I, I have a series of beliefs um, that, that work into and out of politics, okay? <laughs> this other person was uh, utterly indifferent about the debate, and the first thing that went off in me was, how the, how can you be indifferent? You know, th that's what's going on in my head, right? <laughs> It wasn't even going into my heart. It was like, right? And I was like, whoa, what a great teaching. Now, in talking about it, there wasn't indifference at all. There was fear that she didn't want to touch on, okay? Indifference is a mask. So when you feel indifference, that's what you should explore as opposed to trying to equate the fear that, you're, that you have with indifference. That uh, indifference might be fear's mask is another way of putting it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because there's, an, there's enlightenment there. All things. All things offer us a direct path to awakening. Yeah. Hi. But every time fear arises, there isn't necessarily indifference behind it. Mm -mm. They're both the opposite of love in their different forms. And fear has a little more. Fear, fear has more gas. <laughs> yeah. yeah fear, fear is, fear is, it's like the difference between fear and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Anxiety is just unease, right? Fear is really specific about, about the unease, right? And indifference becomes uh, uh, a response to or pre-fear state before you can identify it fully sometimes it's just one of those things or even a post-fear state where we just kind of we don't care we just don't care about something well that's ultimately a loveless state but the indifference itself tends to orient around fear 
as a mask to fear. Yeah, well put, well put. Yes. I got the three heavyweights tonight, boy. <laughs> Might there be a difference between indifference and acceptance? Might there be a difference between indifference and acceptance? I think that's, I think it's, it's a beautiful question, and the difference is huge. Because indifference is not caring. Okay, it's not caring, which is actually a lie. It's a quiet one, but it's a lie. All right? And the, uh, what, what was the... Uh, Acceptance, thank you, acceptance is about being full of care or careful with your experience, okay? So in other words, we look at when we have total care for what is actually going on, when we, we actually take care, we give full attention to what's going on, we are fully attentive, there is no indifference there. Indifference cannot exist in the present moment, okay? It cannot exist if we are present. Because in the present moment, we are not dealing with any type of future scenario or past scenario. We're dealing with what's happening right now. And if we're not dealing with any potential future event or a potential reoccurrence of something that happened in the past, if we're not dealing with that, we are in a place where we can no longer fear. And if, we, if there's an absence of fear, there is only love, which is a present. It's a gift that we, we give, is given through us. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah? <laughs> Any of the other old guard? That, what, okay, yeah, go ahead. I'm calling you, buddy. Yeah. That was he's not too. He's the, kind of the medium guard. The reason why, for those of you who who haven't been, um, Judy and Barbara and Jeannie were at the very first time we met over almost a decade ago. So that's why I I said, and they're still hanging. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, Mark. Sorry. Ken Wilber snippet. I totally spaced out. Hmm. What the, what was I what did it yeah, what did he say did he said he nailed it I well he nailed he nailed what what I did was kind of I went through kind of the um, uh, I gave a precy or, or a, a summary of a talk that he gave tonight I, I borrowed much of what I talked about tonight from from uh, what he had addressed. Okay, so it wasn't a one-liner. No, no, no. It wasn't a zinger. It wasn't a zinger. He's good at those. Okay. He's good at those. No, no. Yeah, Ken Wilbur. Ken Wilbur. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I find for those of you interested, he's uh, he's not um, your typical bathroom read, uh, but uh, but I think I think what he. I th the bathroom read. He's he's he's, he's incredibly inc <laughs> incredibly heady. 
incredibly heady. But but also, um, I don't think there's been a contributor. I'm going to agree with Houston Smith, the great uh, uh, comparative religious scholar, who said maybe his contributions may have may have surpassed Carl Jung's, um, and we'll feel it 50 years from now more than you know more than now. Really, really phenomenal. Uh, spooky how much that guy can can process and coalesce in very little time. How he can literally read and this the the buzz is uh, that he can he can go through two and three full volumes of text in you know a matter of hours and not forget any of it and then be able to put it into another form, which is exactly what great teaching tends tends to do. His ability to point is just phenomenal, but not for everybody, and it hits different people at different points on their path. I think uh, best. Yeah. Question about the, the middle section you were talking about. Um, you know, there's a phrase that kind of has always haunted me. It's in Buddhism somewhere. It's better not to start, but once started, better to finish. And uh, you know, I was thinking about your the Hinayana Mahayana thing. You're going up the hill in in pursuit of emptiness. The yes. Realization of emptiness. And given that you know, many people, me included, are somewhere in the foothills, like sort of scrambling around, falling down three steps, and so forth. <laughs> It seems that, that like is that is that pursuit of emptiness maybe like the most egotistical thing, you know, in a way that you could do, and is there any kind of is there any sense that you can mix those things like the Mahayana is the full boat everybody's involved kind of big heart, so forth and the and the Hinayana is like you're just out there to, you know, get it for yourself. I don't know. I just thought about that in, in, in terms of the better not to start but once started better to finish. Well, I look at, let, let me, the, uh, there are two things I want to address in your great question. First, um, better not to start, but if you do, better to finish. Basically means whatever you do, you do fully. Anything less compromises you and everyone else who you touch through your activity. It's how you generate karma if you don't do it completely. So whatever you're doing, live fully. Well, I always took it more menacingly than that. Yeah, don't. That you, would, you know, it was really better not to start. Yeah. So don't, don't cling to that. Okay? The next thing I would say is your sense, and this goes for everyone in this room, your sense that you are still on the foothills is precisely the story that keeps emptiness from showing up in your experience. Okay? Your sense that you are somehow lacking. That's the problem. Now, the flip of that disease, the other side of the coin there, is, oh, I'm, I see, I'm, I'm already enlightened. <laughs> right? That's the same disease. Okay? I'm enlightened. So what you, what you have to be very, very clear about is that practicing the stillness allows the emptiness that is already available already there to come through you now in conscious ways because you have gotten out of your way. And the way you get out of your way is to see through the fallacy of those stories. See them as curtains to the light that's dying to come out of you. So how, how do we do that? Well, if we're all about heart, okay, if we're all about heart, this gets really gushy. We lose ourselves in the mushiness, the new-agey 
kind of let's all have a hug, we lose ourselves there. If on the other hand, we're all about wisdom, emptiness, mind, if we're all about that, it becomes fascist, right? And so the middle way that you're actually talking about is exactly what we're trying to do right here in this group continually. And how do we do it? By seeing through, by continually accepting what is, but doing it as a group, doing it from a tradition, and this is from a tradition. I don't, I, while I'm not, I'm trained as a Buddhist, I will make absolutely no claims to being priestly. <laughs> I'm not a scholar. I don't know so much. All right? But then the other thing is making sure that you are trusting the guides that you are given. If you can do those three things, you're on it. It's good to see you again. Thank you for coming tonight. <laughs>